Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Vincent J. Maffi. Uh, he's in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Parasitology at Louisiana State University in the Health Sciences Center. Um, we're going to talk about uh, alcohol and dysbiosis, intestinal problems because of it. I guess probably from alcoholics or maybe in other circumstances, but... Vincent, thanks for coming. Thanks, Richard. It's great to be here. Yeah, tell me, uh, if you would, about your research. What's, what's it focused on? Yeah, so I'm a former graduate student of the, uh, as you said, the Microbiology, Immunology, and Parasitology Department. I spent a lot of my time in the Comprehensive Alcohol HIV Research Center at LSU Health in New Orleans. Uh, and the CARC, as it's known, is um, tasked with the identification of the biomedical consequences of alcohol use in the context of an HIV infection. Uh, and so my particular project focused on investigating whether or not alcohol use is associated with accelerated aging in persons living with HIV. So it's really uh, specific. Yes. Why, how did you get into that? Why that? Well, you know, I think if, if you ask, you've probably spoken to a lot of scientists before, you know, there's a lot of sort of meandering that kind of goes on when you're searching for a project. I, when, I, when I joined the MD-PhD program at uh, LSU in New Orleans, you know, I, I, I didn't have a specific discipline that I wanted to study per se, but I did have a specific set of criteria that I kind of wanted to check off in my lab or in my project. Uh, those were that I, you know, I wanted to study informatics by bioinformatics. I wanted to learn how to code in Python and R, run statistical analyses. And then I wanted to apply it into a field that I, that I felt had, you know, very broad applicability. And so my, actually my, my initial work uh, as a graduate student was in the field of aging and aging biology related to dysbiosis. Uh, and we had some, we did some good work with that where we were able to show that dysbiosis accompanies biological aging. And from there, uh, I was interested in identifying maybe additional projects, even subpopulations of persons who are subjected to accelerated aging, and then to look at environmental exposures as they interact with the microbiome and potentially lead to changes in aging or changes in the rate at which someone ages. Well, as a summary, what did you notice? How did microbiomes tend to change as people got older? Yeah, so... One of the primary measures of microbiome research that's done, especially from the standpoint of deep sequencing microorganisms in the gut, uh, is the measures of diversity. And what we found was that as individuals age biologically, I say biologically as it stands in contrast chronologically, chronological aging is simply getting older as time passes, but biological aging is getting older in such a way that your risk for future health problems increases. We have indices to measure one's biological age, so to speak. And what we found was that as people biologically aged, uh, they tended to have less diverse microbiota in their, in their gastrointestinal tract. Oh, less diverse means in just terms of a uh, number of strains and species or uh, 
number of unique organisms as identified by the 16S ribosomal RNA sequence. Oh, what about, uh, did you do any metabolomics or anything to see what the metabolic profile was? Yeah, for this study, we didn't do uh, true metabolomics. Um, we, you know, we did utilize a tool called PyCrest, which is a tool to estimate or infer the genetic and genomic composition of samples uh, as a function of biological aging. Um, but we didn't do, we didn't actually measure directly just because the scale of the study was relatively small. Uh, and at the time, you know, the funding kind of wasn't really focused towards that. That sort of work is, is beautiful and, and something that I see myself getting into, you know, down the road. It's a perfect project for a bioinformatician because, you know, metabolomics, just like the microbiome data, consists, you know, you study thousands and thousands of features, you know, and the goal is to, you know, identify these collections, collections of features that are important and potentially have uh, meaningful use in the clinic. So, all right. So how did this turn to, uh, you know, alcohol for, uh, and how it affects people's gut that have yeah. HIV? So that after after completing that sort of early project in my in my work, you know, we asked ourselves, you know, what, what's what's next? What else is available? And, and it turned out that the Comprehensive Alcohol Research Center, you know, had this ongoing study uh, known as the New Orleans Alcohol and HIV Study. This study is a cohort, it's a pro prospective longitudinal study of about 365 human subjects. They all have HIV, and fecal samples are being collected from these subjects. The goal was to identify whether or not, you know, there are predictors of perhaps dysbiosis in these, uh, in these participants and whether or not those measures of dysbiosis predict or are related to, at least statistically related to, changes in uh, outcomes, HIV-related outcomes. And in particular, uh, how T-cells age is one particular outcome. Why, why is this uh, even important? People with, it, interestingly, uh, HIV, this, you know, these numbers were just updated in June, but there's a study out by Dr. Julia Marcus from Harvard and her team uh, that shows that people with HIV, on average, they live a lifespan that's about nine years shorter than the general population. Uh, this is actually much improved from about 20 years ago, where that lifespan gap was more on, the, more on the order of 20 years or so. So as time has gone by, our ability to fight this virus essentially and, and preserve the lifespan has improved, but there's still a major gap, you know, in, in terms of, of, of lifespan with people with HIV and, and compared to those without. In addition, uh, what's interesting is that uh, people with HIV tend to acquire health conditions, age, aging-related health conditions at an earlier rate. They tend to acquire it earlier in life compared to those uh, in the general population. And, and we're talking about a a gap in time to first comorbidity on the order of about 15 years. And so people with HIV, you know, they, even despite control of their virus, there's still stuff that's going on in their bodies that's leading to, you know, shortened lifespan. And in addition, more years that are unhealthy. So are these people that are just drink the occasional drink or are these alcoholics or, you know, what's the profile yeah. of the cohort? That's a, that's a great question. Yeah, so the question is, you know, how much alcohol is, is harmful in people with HIV? You know, is it heavy drinkers that are, that are the ones that are really driving these, you know, potential phenomenon? And the truth is, is that there's some good work uh, done by the uh, veteran, Veterans Aging Cohort Study authors that show that, you know, there's actually really no safe drinking level for uh, people with HIV. In fact, those that, are, um, that do drink 
uh, tend to tend to have a higher risk of mortality per you know per level of alcohol consumption compared to the general population. There's something about having HIV that alcohol use really just doesn't mix with it. And so this has stimulated a lot of research into identifying the different reasons as to why alcohol can lead to earlier mortality in people with HIV compared to those without. Do you have a cohort of just regular folks that drink as well? So for that, so th yeah, that, that arm of the study is actually ongoing. We initially, we initially had funds to essentially do uh, an HIV-only cohort. Uh, and now we've actually started this process of bringing in, you know, controls to look at the HIV-negative cohort, you know, those that are also living within the New Orleans area, but that don't have HIV. And so this study of ours really just looked at you know, a wide spectrum of alcohol use. I guess our controls in this study would be those that have little to no alcohol use compared to those with some, compared to those with a, with a lot. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So what are you noticing? So we're finding very interestingly, in fact, what started uh, or inspired this line of inquiry was a pilot study done by our group where this was done in uh, a rhesus macaque model of simian immunodeficiency virus. This is the cousin of HIV. And these SIV infected rhesus macaques, uh, chronic binge alcohol administration was associated with an increase in the number of uh, CD8 T cells that are expressing a senescent phenotype. So senescence in the in the in T cells is you know is deleterious. Senescence is a state of essentially impaired replicative ability. And if you recall, it's you know replication, making copies of a of a cell's self, is an essential step in a immune reaction. When an immune cell interacts with you know a, a pathogen or some sort of antigen, you know and it and it registers it as foreign and needs to be removed, it makes several copies of itself. That's an essential step in an immune response. And these cells, they lose that ability. And this is thought to be a consequence of repeated and prolonged episodes of immune activity, right? So we're, we're talking about people living with HIV. They have an infection that is unfortunately you know, not, not cured. It's something that they live with for for their lifespan. It's something that's managed with drugs, but that virus lingers. And with it lingers chronic inflammation. And so it's thought that, you know, people with HIV are sort of predisposed to this prolonged aging or this accelerated aging uh, through this chronic low level inflammation. In addition to that, alcohol use, you know, we, we uh, believe that alcohol use is exacerbating that phenomenon. Alcohol is a very inflammatory uh, molecule and, and in particular, its metabolite acetaldehyde is, is very inflammatory. And so, you know, we contend that the inflammation associated with alcohol and certainly chronic alcohol use can lead to, you know, exacerbation of the phenomenon of T-cell aging or T-cell senescence. And, yeah, but there's got to be a lot of studies on microbiome and alcohol use. Oh, so yeah. That they can inform you on what to look for. Well, like, what fact, did you go in expecting to see and why? 
So our, our main study was essentially had two, two arms to it. The first one was to you know, try to see if we could validate or confirm some of those study, some of the observations made in that animal study I just, just mentioned, where we would look at uh, individuals, uh, ind individual participants' alcohol use and see if it's associated with the emergence of uh, senescent CD8 T cells you know, in, their, in their blood samples. Uh, and we were actually able to, to, do, to do that. We actually did find that there was a positive association between one's risk for an alcohol use disorder and the emergence of senescent CD8 T cells. Uh, and then as a follow-up, we asked, you know, what, what might be mediating this mechanism? or what might be mediating this phenomenon? Uh, and the first thing that came to mind was dysbiosis, one, and then two, a second phenomenon known as gut leak. And so there's quite a bit of literature in, uh, and this is outside the field of HIV, looking at just the effects of alcohol on the gastrointestinal tract. And there's a number of animal studies that have shown that when alcohol is administered to an animal, it's gut barrier breaks down, you know, the gut, epithelium is designed to keep out, you know, pathogens. That's essentially one role of the gut epithelium, but it's, it's designed to keep those microbes out and, in, and keep them in the gut so that they don't find their way inside the host. Well, alcohol disrupts that. Alcohol, you know, permits these microbes to migrate from, you know, the, the lumen, the inside of the gut and into the host tissues. And as you can imagine, that generates a very inflammatory response, you know, both locally at the side of the gut, but also systemically. And so we came into this project, you know, with the goal of identifying whether or not alcohol is leading to gut leak in our cohort, right? And so we also assayed uh, markers of gut leak to see if we could, you know, capture this phenomenon, at least in our cohort. And interestingly, that didn't pan out as strongly as we were expecting. Uh, and there's different reasons you know, why this might be the case. Of the three markers we looked at, essentially one of them was positively associated with alcohol use, but the other two were not. And we, we think this might be related to the fact that, you know, in these animal studies, they're being fed, you know, pretty, pretty high levels of alcohol. And then their guts, you know, gut leak is essentially measured shortly after that, uh, that administration. But in our cohort, our, our participants, you know, they should, they were required to not have had any alcohol consumed with, within the past 24 hours. And so this is telling us that potentially, you know, this gut leak phenomenon may occur, you know, during a state of intoxication, but it may not occur outside of that. And so that, that particular hypothesis, potential explanation of why alcohol is leading to CD8 T cell senescence, you know, didn't really, didn't really pan out uh, completely, I should say. In your human cohort, you're telling people not to drink for 24 hours before yeah. you, they, uh, they, just, they show up. Why? Why, why not look well, at a, a Yeah, so that's a great question. Right after you drink six hours, 12 hours, you know, a mini longitudinal study. Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, I misspoke earlier. We didn't have participants withhold for 24 hours. We had them withhold starting at midnight the night before a study visit. In fact, we actually had participants initiate a period of fasting at that time. So no food or alcohol at that time. Uh, and that's because we were assessing parallel questions on alcohol's association with metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance. And one of the objective measures of those that we collected was a fasting glucose level, which requires a period of fasting 
testing before you collect, you know, a, a blood glucose level. So, but it, it is interesting to ask the question, you know, how might the outcomes that we've discussed today, you know, senescence, dysbiosis, gut leak, how might those have been a little different had we allowed participants to consume alcohol as they normally would have leading up to study visit? Uh, the question as to um, alcohol's acute effects on uh, those outcomes would be, you know, is an interesting one and would be more directly addressed in the setting of a controlled trial where participants could come to a very secure location, consume a fixed or controlled amount of alcohol, and then those outcomes could be, you know, directly measured on site. Uh, and so that's, you know, that would be a particularly interesting study to do. That's not one that we've planned for the near future. It's one that has been done before by other groups in other contexts. Uh, so it's interesting to talk about such a study nonetheless. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Why don't you look at oral microbiome? Well, we do. We actually have that. We actually collected those samples. Uh, and so that we certainly haven't excluded that analysis. Uh, for me, you know, I was sort of the grad student on point for the for the microbiome project. And, and logistically, what worked the best was to really kind of work on uh, the, uh, the gut question. Uh, we have oral rinsates. Uh, that we've collected from our patients. And so, yeah, I think down the road, you know, perhaps the next grad student that comes through the lab uh, could certainly, you know, tackle that project and look at changes in the oropharyngeal microbiome and even look for some co connectivity between the oropharynx and the gut that might explain, you know, maybe, maybe some of these gut changes are explained by some changes in the, in the oropharynx, right? Maybe some of this dysbiotic, maybe this dysbiosis begins in the oropharynx, right? And so- that I mean, it would have to because you're drinking the alcohol, you know, yeah. so- it hits there first, and I'm sure Absolutely. it kills a vast number of the existing bacteria there and probably yeah. acidifies the mouth and does all kinds of stuff. You know? Yeah, and, and, and just to build off of that, you know, or pharyngeal microbiome has to pass, you know, the stomach. It's going to pass stomach acid. It's going to make it pass the small intestine, which is, you know, very harsh. Those are both very harsh environments. And maybe alcohol suppresses the, you know, essential digestive functions so that those organisms are, are allowed to pass. Maybe alcohol lowers the gate, so to speak, on entry into the gastrointestinal tract. Hmm. So in this study, are you far enough along where you are seeing effects? I mean, are you saying just, again, a reduction in diversity or, or what kind of uh, yeah, you know, other so effects what we found, we measured So we measured alcohol use uh, four different ways. One of those was just estimating one's risk for an alcohol use disorder. This is based off of questionnaires that assess people's patterns and behaviors of drinking that befit a AUD or an alcohol use disorder diagnosis. We also measured alcohol on the measure of uh, an order of a lifetime. We had, we had them sort of rate their broad use of alcohol during de different decades of their life. We also had them report their use over the past 30 days. And then we measured a biomarker. We actually measured a biomarker of alcohol use that responds to alcohol use within about... I'd say in the, in the past two weeks. And so it's, it gives you some measure of alcohol exposure in the past two to three weeks. And we found that, interestingly enough, the biomarker was associated much more closely with dysbiosis than the others, uh, which, was, which is interesting because our measure of risk for an alcohol use disorder was strongly associated with senescence. Interestingly, this biomarker was associated with dysbiosis and senescence. So we, we were expecting to see some, some symmetry between these measures of alcohol use, senescence, and dysbiosis, but we didn't see that. And so that sort of speaks to this potential ephemerality of this phenomenon where maybe alcohol use in the short term can lead to changes in the microbiome, uh, which then correlate with changes 
and senescence, but perhaps these changes in the microbiome may not be, may not persist in such a way that you would be able to pick up those changes by just identifying those that have an, an AUD. All right. So you're gauging senescence by what? The, the action of T cells that they're uh, what, apoptosing more or how do you gauge senescence there? Yeah. So that's a good question. So for this study, this sort of early study, we looked at cell surface markers uh, for that were indicative of senescence. And so in particular, the CD28 molecule that is normally expressed on T cells, on senescent T cells, that, that molecule is missing or, or downregulated. And so that in, in conjunction with other markers, uh, we use to identify a senescent CD8 T cell. Uh, and in the, down the road, in fact, our lab is working on, you know, actual assays to measure true senescence, to actually take a sample of cells from a patient, stimulate them and, and check their response. Are they able to replicate? Are they able to mount an effective immune attack or immune response to let's say some sort of lab derived uh, foreign cell, right? You can put in these exogenous cells that are not from the patient and, and measure how well they're killed off by the patient's uh, immune cells. And so those are more direct measures of senescence, right? Because you're looking at function, you're looking at replication. Uh, and so we uh, are building those techniques. Those are not trivial assays. You know, they're very expensive and they take a lot of, a lot of uh, troubleshooting. But at this stage, you know, this is a very, we're in a very early stage in, in, our, in our research center. So this is uh, how you get to that point. You know, you, you, you do studies that focus more on markers. Markers are easier to collect. Markers, you know, they're, you can do them on a, on a larger scale usually. And so this is how you build up to, to work like that. I mean, what's the end goal here? You know, you, I would think you would tell people that have AIDS don't drink. Yeah, that, right. That's probably not going to change. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's much more complicated than just in educating them on the on the harms of alcohol use because alcohol use is you know it's a chronic relapsing addiction, right? And so it's much more it's uh, alcohol leads to sort of a, re, a rewiring of reward systems. So it's it's hard for people to quit, right? You know, just recognizing that not everyone is going to quit. The end game here is to identify probiotics, prebiotics, some sort of microbiota intervention that could rectify at least this component or this source of inflammation in people with HIV such that they could, you know, hopefully experience a longer lifespan, uh, a longer period of healthy years as opposed to unhealthy years. Again, those, those numbers I quoted earlier, uh, the goal is to narrow the lifespan gap and narrow the, the, the gap in incidence of first comorbidity with the general population. Um, so, just like any other translational scientist, you know, you try to, you start sort of broadly and you start to work your way in. The goal is to identify, you know, more precise mechanisms that can then be leveraged in a therapeutic modality. Well, again, how much is understood about just alcohol use in general and how uh, it affects the microbiome? And so, right. So in terms of the work done in animals, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of work. I mean, it's hard to say, it's hard to make a statement of how complete that work is, right? How much more has to be done? There's a there's an incredible amount of research that spans decades uh, on the effects of alcohol use in humans, the effects of alcohol use in animals. Uh, I'll say that right now, the attention in the one of the big projects in the alcohol field is how do you measure alcohol directly as the person is drinking? There's actually been some uh, projects that have been funded to develop wearable technology to actually measure one's consumption on a real-time basis. That way, you know, you have a, an objective measure of consumption that follows the patient everywhere they go. That way you don't have to rely on self-report, right? You know, people, it, it can be hard sometimes to self-report 
accurately how much you've consumed over a certain period of time. So, you know, the tension right now is, you know, how do we improve our measures of alcohol consumption and do it in such a way that doesn't require any special thinking that's not as error prone. And um, from there, you know, make better inferences about how alcohol influences health. And so until you get to that point, you know, the sample sizes for these studies will have to be very large because there's going to be a lot of variability in how consumption is reported. But if you can get a tool that's precise, you know, you have the, uh, the ability to potentially utilize a smaller sample size to accomplish the same sort of goal as you would otherwise. Uh, okay. I mean, so preliminary data just shows uh, a reduction in the number of uh, species of bacteria in the gut. Is there any correlation between the reduction in a given species, you know, less bifidobacteria and, yeah. you know, health consequences? I mean, what, what yeah. conclusions do you draw? So one, one surprising finding was that as people had greater alcohol, recent alcohol use as measured by this biomarker, it was found that there is a co-abundant group of Prevotella bacteria, bacteria within the Prevotella genus, and then other Prevotellaceae members within the Prevotellaceae family. This co-abundant group of bacteria, interestingly, was positively associated with recent alcohol consumption, but also positively associated with CD8 T cell senescence. And then to kind of connect them even further, we did a statistical mediation analysis that just sort of looks at this sort of co-movement of these three uh, phenomena. And, and we found a significant result where statistically, uh, the abundance, the co-abundance of these Prevotella organisms uh, statistically mediates the relationship between alcohol use and T-cell senescence. And what's interesting about Prevotella is that there's actually been a lot of attention, a lot of good data out there on the role of Prevotella in HIV infection. Prevotella has been known to be more abundant in persons living with HIV, and in particular, uh, this, a subpopulation of people with HIV that are also men who have uh, uh, sex with men. So Prevotella has been sort of classified as a you know, potential very interesting player in dysbiosis HIV uh, biology. Another fi interesting finding from another group was that Prevotella, when it's incubated with infected uh, CD4 T cells, that infection tends to be more productive. More of that infection seems to take into the cells. The cells seem to produce more of markers of HIV virus, and those cells are actually die off more quickly uh, compared to incubation with other bacteria in the gut, like bacteroides or, or bifido, like you were saying. So Prevotella is, you know, right now, a, sort of a hot topic in the HIV microbiome literature. And, you know, we're excited to, to, to sort of contribute to that because we've looked at an environmental exposure that's very common in people with HIV that may be regulating uh, Prevotella. Oh, I just realized too that anyone that has HIV is going to be on who knows how many drugs. Right. So I would think that, uh, you know, that would radically change the microbiome and probably radically change how alcohol interfaces with those drugs too. There's a lot of contraindications. Yeah. You know, don't drink if you take X. Yeah. Is, That's is part of the that being looked at or is this all just, I mean, yeah. it sounds like there's a lot of confounding going on. Oh yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. You know, the, the trick with these studies, you know, these multidimensional studies, is that there's so many things that need to be uh, con uh, controlled for and looked at, and, and you do this as well as you can, sort of incrementally. You know, uh, you, you don't just publish, you know, one study and just call it a day. You know, we, we try to keep building on what we've learned about uh, the microbiome and and other factors that influence alcohol use, and try to incorporate those in su subsequent studies. You know, in our study, we we didn't necessarily control for which ART regimen 
they were on. However, we did control for whether or not they were adhering very well to it or not. So we, we separated those subjects statistically and, and, and made sure that we accounted for the effect of people that have, uh, that are adherent to ART uh, religiously compared to those that are having more trouble doing so. And ART, you know, is antiretroviral therapy. These are small molecules that, you know, by design are supposed to interact with RNA reverse transcriptase. That is, uh, uh, at least the, some of those drugs interact with the RNA reverse transcriptase. So these drugs naturally interact with DNA and bacteria harbor DNA, they harbor RNA. Bacteria are, you know, strange organisms. They have, you know, they produce many different types of polymerases, et cetera. So it's re there's reason to believe my point is that there's reason to believe that ART could certainly interact with these bacteria, could alter them in ways that are not really expected. And so that's another important study is to sort of fish out the differences uh, between the microbiome that are explained simply by consumption of uh, different ART regimens. Is there research in that, you know, HIV infected people and what happens to their microbiome in general with yeah. or without drugs longitudinally? Yeah, interestingly, um, some of the early work shows has been has showed that people with HIV that start so in general when you people with HIV tend to have a less diverse microbiome when you add in ART when you give them ART you know there's a there's a, a replenishment it seems like those that are actually taking their drugs and are achieving you know suppressed viral load their diversity goes back up and so there seems to be you know you know this is sort of contributed to this message that diversity in general, at least in the gut, higher diversity is better, lower diversity is sort of worse. Uh, this sort of contributes to that field in, in that kind of way that when, as you start to target the, the HIV infection and suppress it, you get a healthier, potentially, presumably a, a healthier gut. I just, I just don't know if like, uh, you know, diversity in terms of like 16S is really going to tell you much. I mean, there's yeah. diversity of function again, but you know, metabolomics and proteomics and stuff. So, I mean, since there's redundancy in the gut in terms of which species can do X, Y, or Z. These are early studies, right? And so you, you start and you start looking in, in these very complex studies, you start looking at markers first, right? And, and that's what the 16S studies are. You're, you're looking at a marker gene. This is just a region of, of a taxonomically uh, informative uh, gene that then gives you information uh, about the origin or perhaps the uh, phylogenetic origin of the organism. And then from there, it's sort of inferred more or less that the function is different. Obviously, there's, there's a lot of assumptions that are made when you, when you perform a 16S study you know, claim that there's dysbiosis and then claim that there's a change in function, right? So yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there are better ways to assess dysbiosis, right? Uh, one way that our lab is uh, working on is to take fecal samples and then uh, actually incubate them under anaerobic conditions and then collect a supernatant from these uh, fecal samples and then use the supernatants, which are presumably containing metabolites from the bacteria you know, filter out the bacteria out of these supernatants and then treat different cell populations to look for, for example, changes in senescence, right? Or activation of a HIV genome within a latent T cell reservoir, right? And so this is, uh, this is another way to potentially get at the question of dysbiosis. Unfortunately, the microbiome is so vast and so com complex. It's, it's, it's difficult to, to think of a model or a, a model where you can take the entire community, test it without, you know, interrupting it in some kind of way. You know, it's sort of the sort of the holy grail of microbiome research is to develop some kind of model that you can uh, work with this gut, ex this gut microbiome exactly how it, it is in a human without actually using a human or an animal. Uh, so that's, that's a major sort of line of, of work. And at this point, we're just sort of 
tangentially getting at uh, testing the true function of the microbiome at this stage in the research. But you know, in, in the future, you know, I, I certainly look forward to you know, better methods that could be developed to, to get to answer these questions because you're, you know, you're absolutely right. Well, if you're going to make a supernatant of, uh, you know, fecal matter, I mean, you may just be filtering out bacteria, but what about the phageome? It may not just be metabolites. I mean, there oh, yeah. could be all kinds of other stuff in there. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The phageome is, is, is super interesting. That was, that was something that I had originally proposed to, to do in my graduate work, but we ultimately sort of decided against it just for logistics. Uh, but the phageome is, is fascinating. I mean, yeah, I mean, when you filter out bacteria, you're not filtering out viral particles, right? Those viruses are way too small to, to be captured by these filters. Yeah, I mean, one way to, you know, I guess depending on whether or not you see a virus as a living thing or not, as abiotic or bionic, you could even consider it as a metabolite in, in, in a way in that, or really just more broadly as a byproduct of bacteria, right? Because these, these phages, they grow inside bacteria, they release into the environment. And absolutely, phages could certainly play a, a massive role in how bacteria compete with each other, how they work to work with each other to you know, dominate the, the gut space for resources and nutrients. It's entirely possible, you know, we talked about the oropharynx and how alcohol can potentially lead to changes in the gut as a function of the, or the, as a function of what bacteria are in the oropharynx. You know, alcohol is a stressor, right? Alcohol stresses bacteria. For some bacteria, alcohol can be used as, an, as a nutrient. For others, it's, it's, it's a stressor. And so one thing that phages and other viruses that have integrated into, into host cells, what, what they often do in response to a stressor is to replicate. They want to make more copies of themselves before it's too late, right? So it's totally reasonable to believe that alcohol could be inducing maybe a stress response and inducing phage release which then leads to, you know, massive shifts in the microbiome. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot to figure out. So what, what's the path forward for the research in the near term, the next year or so? Yeah, like I said, the main uh, goal is to, you know, create more functional assays to, you know, really get at the things that we intend to study. Functional assays for senescence, functional assays for dysbiosis. Uh, we're trying to continue this work in our cohort. Our, core, our study is actually a longitudinal study. So we're, gonna, we're doing the same sample collection at a later date, and we're going to look at longitudinal changes in alcohol use and dysbiosis and senescence to see, you know, is there a temporal relationship between changes in alcohol, changes in, in the makeup of the gut that might correspond or explain some of the differences in T-cell senescence. And so the longitudinal arm of this study is ongoing, uh, and that's something to also to look forward to. Well, very good. Vincent, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Yeah, so um, I provided some links to the uh, Comprehensive Alcohol Research Center. You simply just type in, you know, the Comprehensive Alcohol Research Center, LSU Health Sciences, and Google, and you'll, you'll, it'll probably be your first hit. Uh, that's, that's the best place to start. And, and on that page, you'll, you'll see the different lines of inquiry that have been established by our research center. And so from there, yeah, you can get in touch with us and maybe express some interest, maybe express some criticism, what have you. Yeah, I guess, you know, people in the a stiff drink when they read through the research, right? <laughs> that would yeah, be absolutely. <laughs> no, well, that's good. great, Vince. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Richard, for the invitation. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.